All right, let's um, take our Bibles this morning, and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And let's pray. Lord, this morning as we approach your word, we ask you, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds with it. That you would help us to realize what we have not realized before. And I pray, Lord, that would not only be for now, but that would be every time we read the word, every time we hear it preached, every time we hear it taught. That our hunger would match your light and you would fill us. I pray that today. And I pray that you would use the Word of God to bolster faith and encourage believers to live a life for you. And I thank you, Lord, for how you answer that prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse number 18 through 20 this morning. But remember, this context here is a context of prayer. And as soon as the apostle gets word concerning this growing congregation, they were full of faith. They had godly love for one another. Uh, you would think, as I mentioned already, that he would say, oh, hey, they look like they're doing good. Uh, I'll go somewhere else and pray for that congregation. It doesn't look like they're doing so good. But that's not what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture tells us that when he heard the good news about their growing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints that he went, the Apostle Paul went into serious prayer. And it says in verse 16, it says, Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then in verse 17 he gives the general request, which I covered already, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And last message, I end it with the bottom line to this particular passage of Scripture and this prayer request, and it's this, that the urgent need of the church is the knowledge of God. We need to know God better. This is a simple yet profound truth that man's greatest need for God's church is not just to know about God, things about God, but to know of Him, to know Him. See, God's been looked for in all kinds of places by many different people in many different ways. God's been looked for in history. He's been searched for in providence. He's been searched for even inside of us. You hear the thing where people say God's within, right? And he's still being searched for throughout the universe. When people search for him, they find the fingerprints of God everywhere but they don't find him. You see, the way God has determined 
is the only way to discover truth about God. That is, in his revelation given to us by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, tells us of the truth about God, about God's character, about God's being, about God himself. In fact, uh, a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, where Paul went to the people of the Corinthian church and says, listen, I didn't come to you with persuasive words of wisdom. I came to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And then he goes on to say to them, listen, if the world had the wisdom that they think they had, well, they would not have crucified the Son of Glory. That's what the Word of God said. It tells us in the Word of God, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then in verse number 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Just recently, Jane and myself and our family attended a wedding for her niece, Christina, in Lucan, Ontario, Canada. I've never been there before. You have to pass by the Niagara Falls. And of course, it's, it's very hard to pass by the Niagara Falls going to a wedding and coming back and pass them by again. So we had to stop and see them. And it's amazing. Uh, the, they're amazing, actually. But... As we attended the reception of the wedding, we, we sat with some people that we knew, and we, we sat with some that we never met before. And while you sit with people, what usually happens is that there's some introductions going on. You exchange some questions back and forth, like, uh, where are you from? Uh, you know, how, uh, how are you connected to the bride or to the groom? You know, what do you do for a living? Uh, how many kids do you have? And I, of course, I always ask this one, what's your church background? And because I want to get to the next question. And, uh, and so on and so forth. You and I, we both do that. See, if we're going to know anything about anyone, the best way to do that is to ask them. They can tell us. In a similar way, if we are going to know anything about God, he must tell us himself. It was Job who cried out in Job 23 and verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. And if I did know, I would go and I would sit by his seat so he can teach me, so I can get wisdom from him. See, Jesus speaks to the things that testify about himself in the Gospels where he says there's two things that testify about me and who I am in my ministry. One of them is the Father. And then he says this. The second thing is the Scriptures. He tells the disciples, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me, the Father and the Scriptures. So we can't sit down with Jesus because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's not how it's intended to be anyway. 
we're to sit down with Scripture, and Scripture tells us who God is, who Christ is. And as we learn from that, then, of course, we learn all the things that we need to know about him so we can live for him, so we can adore him, so we can worship him, so we can serve him. Now, in our uh, the book of Ephesians, it, back to this prayer request in our text, if you notice, he moves from the general point of the prayer to the specifics. And look, notice in the specifics that there are three vital things, I call it, for Christian knowing. And look what he says in verse number 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that you will know. He wants us to know something. He wants us to know actually three things. And if you notice, in verse number 18 and 19, it begins with a what. He says in verse number 18, what are the riches, or first of all, what is the hope of his calling? And secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And a third thing in verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So he's concerned that we know about our calling, about the inheritance that we have and God has in us, and thirdly, about our power, the power that God is, gives to his people. Now, what really is going on is that there's a contrast being made between the natural man and the spiritual man. The contrast will become clearer in chapter 2 of Ephesians, but for now, we know that the saint has moved from darkness in their understanding to an enlightened understanding. A simple way to put it, when you become a Christian, God turns the lights on, and the lights never go off. They never go off, because the light is being shine into our heart from the scriptures, from the word of God. And if you notice in verse number 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That's how he starts it. So you may know. So God wants the light to shine in the hearts of his people so they know things. Now when my son Joshua came back from a deployment in Afghanistan before he handed in his combat equipment, I got a chance to check out his night vision monoculars, or a monocular, uh, that, you know, it's the kind of thing that you see today that attaches to the soldier's helmet and they flip it over their eyes, you know, all high-tech stuff. And, uh, but man, I wanted to see how, how those things really work. And so before he handed it in, one dark night, when the moon was not out and the clouds covered the night sky, we pulled out that night vision equipment. In fact, some of that night vision equipment is up to about, cost up to sometimes two, three, four, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for one piece of equipment. It's really high tech stuff. And this particular piece of equipment 
this monocular, what it does, it, is allo- it allows the user to increase or decrease the image to brightness for greater image contrast in varying light conditions. Well, when I flipped it over my eye, I could not believe what I saw. It was like I was standing at noontime on a clear, bright, sunny day, yet I was standing in pitch darkness. I could see everything clearly, things I didn't even see in the daytime I could see clearly. I mean, I was completely surprised that if a soldier is tracking someone, there's no way they're getting away. They not only have that, but they have thermal sensing devices that, and then they have laser beams that you're not going to miss these people. They're dead. They're, they're dead in their targets. But what was amazing to me is that when I turned off the night vision, I was in complete darkness. Complete, utter darkness. Matter of fact, I lost my night vision too, and so everything was blacker than it was before. That night vision scope is designed to flood the visual range with light. In fact, one Bible translator translates Ephesians 1.18 like this. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. Good translation. I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so you see what you didn't see before. So you see constantly like you're standing in the middle of the day and the sun is shining brightly. Even though things may be dark in your life, you see clearly, you see reality because you're seeing it through the Word of God, through the Scriptures. It should be our constant prayer that our, for our eyes to be opened more and more to spiritual knowledge. Why? Because we're babes when it comes to our knowledge of God. No one can claim any kind of measure in that area. And as it has been said, we are wading at the edge of a vast ocean of truth when it comes to God. It never ends. We will never stop learning about God. On this side of eternity or in heaven with the Lord, we will never stop learning about how great and grand He is. The prayer is that we might see what is truly before us. Yet, because of our spiritual blindness, we utterly fail to perceive apart from the Spirit's enlightening work. The Bible says that the natural man, because of the sinful condition of his heart and mind, is blind to the glories and the beauties of God. You see, we are See, we, re- we require ongoing illumination from God's Spirit so that we do see the glories and the beauties of God and all that we have and all that awaits us because we are now in Christ, because we're no longer in darkness, we're in the light. 
and we're under the authority of Christ and we are under the authority of Scripture that is illuminating your heart and mind every time it's spoken and preached. See, there's a problem. Here's the problem. If this is true, and it is, why is it that the church is depressed? Why is it that the church is lethargic? Why is it that we probably have more people today in the church on antidepressants than at any other time in the history of the church? Why is it so that when the world looks at the church, it sees a sad and depressed group of people? Well, maybe because the church has focused too much on the problem They have analyzed the problems, they have diagnosed the troubles, they, and, and in doing so, they have come to all these conclusions, and because of it, they've become sad and depressed. In other words, the church is really seen by the world as no different, because when they look at the church, they see a sad and lethargic group of people who are not passionate about their faith, for the most part. I'm saying for the most part this morning. Now, why is that? Well, just let me take a little rabbit trail for a minute. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Now, Luke 24 is familiar to you and I. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. Because in this passage of Scripture, remember, this is the disciple on the road to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the grave, after Jesus uh, died on the cross, and... So in a similar way, those disciples who walked with Jesus back then on the wrong road may have the same problems that we have, or we have the same problems they have. In fact, uh, following Christ's resurrection, Cleophas and a friend were going to Emmaus, a town uh, outside of Jerusalem where they encountered another traveler on the road and it says in Luke 24:13 it says behold two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about 7 miles from Jerusalem All right so these two disciples were walking to Emmaus when a stranger came along and walked with them now Jesus withheld his identity they didn't know he who he was for the whole time they were walking not until they got to the home of one of the travelers and then he revealed himself there so the whole time they had no clue who he was now that's interesting because it does reveal their problem if you look in Luke chapter 24 look at verse 17 because the scripture informs us actually about three heart conditions and here's the first one in verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Now, remember, they're talking about some things that were happening that uh, Jesus had come. Uh, he was a great teacher, a great prophet, but they nailed him to the cross and he died. And, and they said, now it's the third day. And some of the things we hoped would happen didn't. And look what he says in verse number 
17, he says, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking, how? Sad. Now, I don't know about you, but sadness is the kind of thing that takes you over. You know what? How do you know when people are sad sometimes? You look at their face. They look sad. They look sad. It's all over. It, it, like, it's written all over you. So these disciples were sad. Look at verse 15, or verse 18. One of them named Cleophas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of dead and death and crucified him. Now, these people, though, these two guys are sad. Why are they sad? You know why they're sad? Because they concluded that Jesus' life ended at the cross. That's what they concluded. See, these three travelers walked and talked together, but the disciples did not recognize the stranger was Jesus. And when Jesus asked them what they're talking about, the disciples told him all about the crucifixion, the empty tomb, they even said, and how discouraged they were about the things had not worked out as they hoped because they were thinking about a Messiah who would come and deliver Israel and have military and political influence over everything and establish his kingdom right there and then. That did not happen. So see, their th in their thinking, it, it ended. He didn't do what he, what he... I guess he's not the Messiah. And then it reveals another type of heart in these individuals that, go, that really goes along with the sad heart. And in verse 21 to 25, he mentions a slow heart. And I'm calling it a lethargic heart. All right? What do I mean? Someone who is slow to understand what's going on slow to understand the truth, the scriptures. And he says in verse number 21, and look with me, of Luke 24, but we were hoping that it was he was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, and some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it ex just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. They didn't see Jesus. And I guess if you don't produce a body, then I guess maybe it's not true, right? Look at verse number 25. And he said to them, this is Jesus now speaking to them, O foolish men, slow to heart, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What's their problem? You know what their problem is? They were selective in what they believed the scriptures taught. Jesus say, is saying to them, you guys are slow, man. You are lethargic. You're not believing. You're believing only part of it. You're not believing all what the prophets have spoken about Jesus. Because if you read on, you would find in Psalms that Jesus is not going to be left in the grave to decay. He's going to rise from the grave. 
See, so they were sad and slow of heart, and Jesus calls them foolish. You know why? Because the light is right there, and you're not seeing it. You don't have your night vision glasses on. You're not seeing it, man. See, and I think that's the problem with the church. Because I tell you what, if we were seeing it, we would be psyched. If we were seeing it, you know what it says in our text? Look what it says in our text. It says in verse number 25, it says, And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning from with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Remember, Jesus was doing, he was taking the law, the writings, or the Psalms and the prophets, and that contained the whole Old Testament. But what happened to them when they were walking with Jesus, after Jesus revealed himself later on, look what the disciples said to themselves. And this reveals a third kind of heart. So they go from a sad heart to a lethargic heart to a burning heart. Look what it says in verse number 31 of Luke 24. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? Look what it says, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. When he, they were walking with Jesus, the, they were illuminated. Their hearts burned because they knew this is the truth. You know, and it does say something here, too. Remember, Jesus didn't reveal himself. People say, well, if I sat down, if I saw Jesus, I'd believe him. No. Jesus didn't point to himself at all here. He pointed to what was already written about him in Scripture. So if you're going to find Jesus, and if you're going to find a knowledge of God, you're going to find him right here in his revelation. That's where you're going to find him. You're not going to find him anywhere else. So search for him. You'll see, his, you'll see his fingerprints, but you'll not find him. You'll find him when you read and study the Scripture. When the Scriptures illuminate your mind, that's when you'll find him. That's when you'll come to hear him. So see, it takes that for you and I and the church to come to a place where we are praying for one another that our eyes are open, that our understanding is illuminated, so we can what? Live for God here and now and anticipate what's coming. See, that's reality. Now, with all that in your mind, let's go back to Ephesians and pick it up where I left off there in Ephesians. It's because, see, Scripture wants to rescue you and I from a discouraged, sad heart and a lethargic heart, and it wants to give us a heart that's burning, a heart that is illuminated, a heart that is ready to serve God with all that it has. And I said already, 
that we require an ongoing illumination from God's Spirit to see the glories and beauties of God, right? Now, I want you to see three vital things in our passage this morning. In verse number 18, in verse number 18 of Ephesians, this is what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Here's the first thing he wants us to know. What is the hope of your calling? And hope, remember, in Scripture, is, it means a mighty certainty. That's what it means, a, a mighty certainty. When, when, what makes Christian hope so strong is the knowledge of our, is, is, is really our the knowledge of a growing understanding of God and what he says. Hope here is the realization that you have been called to be a Christian. He wants you to know that you are a Christian. The call came from the offer of the gospel in which you responded in repentance and faith. He wants you to know that. Now remember, when you look at this word call, there's, there's a way to understand this. There are two distinct calls in Scripture. One of them is an outward call of the gospel. It's while heard by the ears, it can be rejected many times. It's like when Jesus says in Matthew, for many are called, but few are chosen. So all who hear are invited. This call is ineffective by itself because all men are totally depraved and in reality hate God, and they resist the call when it comes to them. So by our experience, we know that not everyone receives the call. Not everyone, they may hear the call, but they don't receive the call. And because they don't receive the call, they don't believe the gospel when they hear it. And why don't people believe the call? Because according to Acts, they have a hard heart. They're stiff-necked. And secondly, they have an uncircumcised heart. They, they I don't obey what God says and they have a heart, their heart of hearing also. Their ears are always resisting, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit. They dig in. It's like the a prophet Jeremiah, when he was right on in diagnosing people's spiritual problem, when he wrote in Jeremiah 6.10, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. See, people hear the gospel, but they don't respond to the gospel like we would like to. But the word of God is saying here that you ought to know your calling. Who called you and what happened to you? So, see, the second way to understand calling is an inward calling. It's taking place when the outward call of the gospel is made, whereby God, the Holy Spirit, calls his people to himself effectually by working a miracle in their hearts, bringing them from spiritual death to life. The Holy Spirit transforms the heart, the mind, and the will. And I believe we can understand the passage of 
scripture like John 6.63 where it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It's when the Spirit of God calls someone in their dead state and they respond to the gospel. So the outward call, the general call to salvation is made to everyone to hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit extends a special call to the chosen, to the elect, and inevitably it brings them to salvation. So the external call that is made without distinction may often be rejected, but the internal call cannot be rejected because it is a result of what God is doing. He is connecting you, your faith to Jesus Christ. In other words, where, there, where there's fire, there's heat. Where there's genuine faith, there's new life in Christ. You cannot separate them. All right, so in other words, the prayer request here is that God graciously summons people to new life in Christ. And that day, they respond to it. So the prayer is, should be that we are certain of the hope of our calling. To know your salvation is certain. Do you know that? This morning, do you know your salvation is certain? It's to know it's not a delusion. It's, it's not, it hasn't been a, a false experience where Satan would, would tempt you to think that way but, or, and keep you in a state of always doubting. But here it says, you now know in your mind because your mind is no longer darkened. Your mind is actually enlightened with spiritual truth and you know it. You know your calling is part of God's plan and what God started he will finish and end it with absolute certainty for you that's what the word of god tells us in other words you know because you have been born again you will never fall away from god see you and i as believers are meant to have this assurance of salvation you're meant to have this assurance of salvation And I, I believe that it's a steadfast hope of the calling of a Christian. And when we fail to grasp the hope of Christ's calling, we live in unnecessary defeat. We live in darkness when we're not in darkness. We cannot be like the proverbial young man who's plucking away at the daisy pulling one pedal and says, he loves me, and another one saying, he loves me not. No, we must say to ourselves, he loves me, period. Now I love him, period. And once this truth floods our hearts with light and informs our understanding, our hope is emptied of uncertainty and filled with expectancy. That's what it does. That's what it does. And the Word of God is saying, listen, your minds and hearts need to be illuminated so you know for sure the hope of your calling, that you're a believer. If you are always doubting and up and down and all around, you'll do nothing for the Lord. Matter of fact, you are probably discouraged and depressed all the time because of that thinking. 
But it leads to our second point of knowing. And it's this, and I'll not spend time here, but the second thing we are to know is found in verse number 18. It says, not only are we to know the hope of his calling, but what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? See, the prayer is that we would come to know more and more what is ours in Christ. In other words, that we know something for which God is preparing us. When we gather together to enjoy the benefits of our great salvation we have received in Christ Jesus, we're anticipating, we're expecting what's next. Why? Because we know who we're saved, we know who saved us, and we're living for the Lord with our heart, and the lights are turned on. We're being illuminated in our understanding. And so what the Word of God is telling us here is that our inheritance three things about our inheritance it's abundant it says there very quickly what what are the riches of our inheritance it's abundant we are wealthy we are we're co-heirs with christ we are wealthy second thing about our inheritance that it is glorious the glory of our of his inheritance in other words that it's we're talking about here the inheritance that god has in us and the inheritance we have in god himself See, we have inherited great riches and glorious riches, and they have the fingerprints of God all over them, but we only have them in part. We are going to have them in their fullness when we get into the presence of God. But right now, we have them. By faith, we have them. We learn of them in the Scriptures. We're learning more and more of what they are, and our inheritance also is secure in verse number 18. What are the riches of the glory of His of his inheritance in the saints. So it is God's inheritance. So therefore, we are secure in what God has given us, not only in our salvation, but in what God gives us in that salvation in Christ Jesus. You know, so, so that means, you know, the, the Christian is someone who is knowing these things. His understanding is being enlightened. And the reason why is because Christians have been called to a certain mandate. They have been called, first of all, to be aliens in this world. Secondly, they have been, been called to be citizens of another kingdom. And then they also have been called to, be, to, become in, to be ambassadors in this world. Therefore, we are not merely chosen for heaven. We are chosen for earth. So that the destination of the elect while they are on the earth is to move through this life while demonstrating an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel and live out our ambassadorship as citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that Christians belong to that city of which walls are jasper and the gates are pearls and the streets are made of gold. See, we have a high, high calling. And we have a great and grand inheritance. Are you continually growing to understand your inheritance as a saint? What God has really done for you? You should. And so here in our text in Ephesians 1, when we Christians are enlightened by the Holy Spirit with the Scripture, we are assured that we are really God's children and that His hand is on us and he is leading us to a certain and a blessed eternity. 
So therefore, the light of Scripture makes things clear. In fact, it makes three things clear from our passage of Scripture. Scripture clears up the assurance issue. Right? I know I'm a believer. Right? That was passed. Also, Scripture clears up the scope of blessings God has for us. He's given us an inheritance. It's ours. We have it in part, but someday we will have full possession of it in the kingdom of God. And then it clears up something else. And this is one of the things that I want to look at this morning. It clears this up. It clears up the way to live for, as God's children on this earth, as citizens of heaven in this world, in the here and now. It clears it up. How are we to live here? See, how are, do we, live, are, are we to live as aliens, as citizens of heaven, as ambassadors of the gospel? How are believers to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked those questions? Have, have they ever bothered you? How do I live this Christian life? It seems impossible to live it. Well, here's the third thing we Christians are to know. And look what it says in verse number 19. Here's what we're to know. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? You know what we're to know? We're to know this. We're to know that God has given us power to live. Can't live it on your own. He's given us divine power to live. And how great is that power? How much strength is available for the Christian in his daily living? See, the answer to all the questions I asked is set forth in the middle of our passage in verse number 19 where it says this. It says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, the word of God, matter of fact, when Paul was writing this, he had to use four different words to describe the power. He couldn't just do it in one word. He had to use four words. And the four words, the first one found in uh, the beginning of verse number 19 is power. And that means it's the word dynamite and just simply means raw power to overcome obstacles. He's given us raw power. A second word he uses is the word workings. According to working in verse number 19, working of the strength. All right, so workings is the word energy in the Greek, and it means that God has energized his people for godliness. God has given us an energy for that to accomplish it. It's the same word used in Philippians where it says in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then there's a third word, and it's the word strength. It's, this word means mastery as one, or victory, as one has victory in battle, being able to gain a victory over something. And then a fourth word is the word might, strength of his might, and this is the word ability. Now, I was thinking about this in this passage because if Paul thought it was quite important, then it's important for us too. Because if we're to know this power that's given to us, and he uses his four words to describe it, he uses it to describe several things. Number one, ability, capacity, and potential. All that is given to the believer. 
It's like a bulldozer. And what do I mean by that? Well, a bulldozer has ability, it has capacity, and it has potential. That a bulldozer can level ground, it can uproot trees, it could move heavy objects. It's designed to do that. So in like manner, for the Christian, we have been given ability, capacity, and potential. For what reason? Well, to resist temptation. To put off besetting sins. To put on godly character. To bear godly fruit. See, all these things have been given to us. In fact, the believer, believers are urged to depend on this power to seek and to seek it's an inexhaustible source for their daily living. It's not talking about later on. It's talking about now, right now in your life. Whatever's going on in your life, the Christian has this. See, has your mind been illuminated by Scripture, and have you actually experienced the power that God's given you because you know you're a believer, you know the inheritance that awaits you, and you know now the power that God has made available to you, making you able and capable and have this potential power to put to death sin and to put on godliness and to live for Christ. See, he prays that we may fully and may appropriate personally and may learn in experience the measureless might and the exceeding greatness of the power which God is exerting to us who believe. Where it says that in Scripture, He's exerting this power to us who believe. Now, how much power was necessary to take Christ, crucified, mutilated, disgraced, dead, and raise Him? in newness of life, radiant and triumphant and glorious, and place him at the right hand of God in the throne of heaven. How much power would it take to do that? We read in the quote how powerful the sun is, and now we have a special team designed by the scientists that watch the sun 24 hours a day on this big screen. Everything that goes on with the sun, because this, you know the sun tell us what's going on sometimes you know and the son has done great and powerful things but that same power that raised Christ from the dead is ours do you believe that see this is the problem do we really believe that this is a hard one if we are in Christ if we are members of his body if we belong to his church do we believe that that same power is given to us to live the Christian life. See, what power are you trying to resist temptation with? What power are you using to put off hindrances and besetting sins in your life? What power are you, you, are you using to develop a godly character and bear godly fruit? What power are you using because it will take a vast amount of power for that to happen. It's not going to happen on your own. If you're depending on 
power, forget it. You will live in utter defeat. See, the fact is that sin is the greatest power in all the world. No method or power from us or from the world can overcome it. Only the almighty power of God working in the lives of those who seek it from God and through Christ are the ones who have victory. They're the ones who will live the Christian life. Those are the ones who know their minds have been illuminated. In fact, if you look over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, he kind of lets us in on it a little bit. And he says this, he says in verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power. Then verse number 20 of that same chapter, it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. There's a power that works within us that cannot even be described, and it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father. It is yours. It's mine. Why aren't we overcoming sin? Why are we so sad and depressed? Why is it? Is it because our minds have not been enlightened to this truth where we actually say to ourselves, I'm going to put this into practice. This power is mine. I have the ability, the capacity, and the potential to do this. And God gives it to us. This is utterly amazing to me. Because I tell you what, if we don't take this power, then what's going to happen is that we are going to be overcome by sin and temptation. We are going to be taking our cues from the world, and the world is filled with error. And you know what? We won't be able to stand up in the face of our enemy and assault him with truth. Because the devil is a million times stronger than you. He hates you. He hates your family. He hates your marriage. He hates this church. You'll not stand up against him in your own power. You'll not do it. And Paul's getting to all that in the rest of Ephesians. See, we have a power that's been given to us. He's just at the beginning to say, do you see this? Is your night vision gear on? Do you realize sin that's occurring in your light right now can be put to death? Do you realize that you can bear godly fruit and put off that old sin that's been holding you in chains and a ball all these years and say no more because I am a believer. I have an inheritance in heaven that starts here in Christ Jesus and I have the power of God to put that thing to death, to put on godly behavior, to bear godly fruits, to resist temptation. See, if the church was doing this, we would be those people who have burning hearts. Burning hearts do this. Why? Because their eyes have been opened to the truth. Their eyes have been opened to the power of Christ. And they desire to live that way. So surely, surely, 
this should quicken our hope, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it enable us to appropriate our inheritance? Shouldn't it strengthen us to maintain against any enemy, against any hindrance, against every obstacle in our path and overcome in the power of God? See, do you understand? Resurrection power is available to all who believe in Christ. For now, right now, when we live on this earth, we can live holy lives and serve God. And not only that, this power is given to us to secure our full inheritance. This power is also the power that raised us up to spiritual life in Christ Jesus. It is the power of the gospel that has done that. Also, this power is going to raise your corruptible, decaying flesh into a glorious spiritual body that will live in the presence of God for all eternity. You realize that? You don't seem so excited about it. Is it me? Or is it, what is it? I just prayed this morning that probably this one is the most difficult to believe. It is the most difficult to put into practice. But it's ours. How come this radio don't work? You trace down the line, it's not plugged in. Why don't work? See, if you're a Christian, you're plugged in already. If you're a Christian, you have the light of truth every day illuminating your heart and mind. And if you're a Christian, every day you have the power available to you. Every day. So, see, this is the prayer that we ought to pray for one another. That our eyes would be opened and that to what is the hope of our calling, to what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and to what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. See, that's where the power is. And I pray that if you live that way, and if you and I walk this way, we will be amazed at what we're able to do as Christians because we have already been given by God ability capacity and potential and maybe we should be called Christian bulldozers because you know what you were made for that you were made for that that's why again when we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians what, what are we able to do stand up against the wiles of Satan against his tripwire against his potholes against everything you can throw at us and stand we're able to do that why because of who we are because of what God's given see that's the church and if the church is like that they don't need to be sad or depressed or lethargic they need to be burning and live for Christ in this world and make a difference here let's pray Lord thank you again for your kindness to us Lord I read a passage of scripture like this and I am kind of overwhelmed by it 
If it wasn't written there, I would not have known it. And even, Lord, even though it is written there, it is hard to believe it. But, Lord, help our unbelief. And I pray even this week, we would go home and examine ourselves and look at ourselves. We would look at our calling and our election, that we would look at our inheritance that's ours in Christ, and we would also now put into practice the power that you've given us. And Lord, enable us to overcome obstacles. There's nothing impossible with you. And so Lord, use us as a people who live in a dark world that have light, the light of the gospel, and help us to use it to bring others to see what we see and to rescue them from the fires of hell. Oh Lord, enable us today. Answer this prayer for us, Lord. Thank you that it's here and that we can lift it up before you and let it be seen and visible in our life every day. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.